Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Webmartin Consulting and Tax Ed, to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Michael Doran, director of both Tax Banter and Webmartin Consulting. Michael, welcome to Tax Yak. Thank you, Robin. Great to be here and great to be yakking with you. Great. So today we're going to have a chat about payroll tax. Now, this is an area that uh, affects many, many businesses across the state and, in fact, the country. Um, and I wanted to run through with you some of the, the challenges that businesses are facing and, and looking ahead as to what payroll tax might look like in the years ahead. Let's start with the politics of payroll. It's probably one of the most loathed taxes out there. Businesses, yeah, if they could pick one tax they could uh, repeal, this would be it. So should we keep it or should we ditch it? Okay, great place to start. I think uniformly it is certainly a despised tax um, by employers and, and employer uh, peak groups, which is very interesting because it's an important, very important aspect to the tax system. Uh, it raises $25 billion nationally. So on that level alone, it's hard to see that it's going anywhere uh, because if that 25 million 25 billion disappears it obviously needs to be replaced look okay, i think back 18 years ago when gst came in and we had the, the major reform of our tax system there were many who misunderstood what tax reform meant and perhaps uh, wishful thinking were hoping that that might be repealed but that was never on the table no not not at all uh, the henry review foreshadowed that in the longer term the payroll tax system perhaps should disappear and be replaced with um, broader-based consumption-style taxes uh, due to some perceived inefficiencies with payroll taxes as a collection mechanism. But the constant kind of criticism of payroll taxes is a disincentive for employment. Particularly with it being threshold-based, because once you tip over that threshold, you're into payroll you're tax into the system. And what's really interesting, I think, is there was a paper released out of the Federal Treasury this year that did some modelling regarding if payroll tax was such a disincentive because of the threshold concept, you would expect there would be a clustering of employers paying wages just below the payroll tax thresholds in each of the state. So effectively, businesses structuring themselves to keep themselves out of the payroll tax net. And all of that data basically produced a finding, well, the stats don't support that. There is no clustering of, of wage bills at or around payroll tax thresholds. But if we're back out in the real world, a business is running and it's got its commercial objectives and it's doing what it needs to do, I'm not sure that payroll tax is the foremost issue in its mind. I would hope not. I would hope not too. Yeah, I would think um, revenue would be a little bit more important than the 5% or 6% payroll tax costs. So, but certainly, I mean, in terms of the politics of it, I don't see the tax going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, at $25 billion to the Australian economy, I'm not sure we've got a mechanism to replace that yet, other than obviously wholesale change to the GST system. And politically, that is a difficult sell. Um, the time to probably take that tough decision was when we got the GST, we didn't take it then. I'm not sure the community is any much more ready for it now. Would you describe payroll tax as a political football? Is it something that likes to be tossed around and everybody's got an opinion about payroll tax? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a politician, getting rid of payroll tax will always get you a headline. Uh, in fact, when that Treasury document came out this year re regarding the data and the, and the clustering, um, many of the independents... Uh, 
got a got a bit of quick press. Uh, Pauline Hanson springs to mind. Um, you know, let's abolish payroll tax disincentive to employment. Um, the data doesn't actually suggest that it is, but you know, certainly the politicians will jump on board because it's a it's a, a quick headline for them. Uh, the business lobby groups will always push that argument as well. But I think until someone's got a clear, comprehensive plan, as if we're getting rid of it, um, why why is it an inefficient tax? Because a tax on payroll. Fundamentally, is a simple one to collect. Um, and if it isn't a disincentive to employment, what's the problem with it? But if we are getting rid of 25 billion worth of revenue, how are we replacing it? Exactly. It's got to be replaced with something else. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So some issues for businesses. It is one of the most despised taxes, but uh, I can't see it being repealed anytime soon. So if payroll tax is here for the long term, then what do you see the issues that businesses are going to be grappling with into the years ahead? The great thing I think about payroll tax, I'm quite fond of it as a tax. Um, I, I think That's it's an quite... interesting word to use with tax. You're <laughs> fond of payroll tax. Can you explain? Well, it's got a kind of a, a really interesting history in the Australian tax system. So it was a wartime tax introduced 1941 as a way to, to raise some money. So introduced at a federal level to raise some money to assist with welfare payments in a wartime setting probably plays an important part in the tax fabric. Um, we then get to 1971 and the Commonwealth decide that they want to pass responsibility for collection of payroll taxes down to the states. Do you know why that happened? As, as part of the change of uh, funding arrangements between the federals and the states. So mm. with the federals basically uh, assuming more responsibility for grant funding to the states, um, they passed the payroll tax collection rights to the states to, to give them some money. Basically, so um, where, where do we get to there? So we've got what should be basically, you know, a pretty simple system. Um, but the minute you devolve things down to the states, um, the states will use the tax sometimes as, as a lever to drive um, some politics or economic growth. So what we found was that states were doing different things with their tax base. So if you're an employer that employs nationally across Australia and you're trying to, to cope with this system that has different treatments across different states, it starts to get annoying and a little bit more difficult to comply with. And things have improved in more recent years, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But at one point, the lack of harmonisation was an impediment. It was so difficult to work out what your obligations were per state because the requirements varied so much. Absolutely. I mean, at the starting point, you have things like different thresholds and rates in each state. Um, one of the big bugbears for employers is the fact that you have to lodge in each state if you're paying your wages there. So rather than a single lodgement with the wages being allocated across each state and, and a single payment of, of, a, of a composite amount of tax, no, you have to lodge monthly in each state. Now, that's a real bugbear for employers, and that's hopefully something that the states can get their heads around and fix up as we move forward. But but in a, in a general kind of sense, um, things did get uh, rather loose in terms of the treatments of, of different items between states. We had some major reforms from, say, that 1971 through to a, a national harmonisation program that happened in 2007. Um, when you've got a payroll tax and you're trying to tax payroll, um, you need to watch, I suppose, movements in the business landscape. And the two key movements in the business landscape that have impacted payroll tax over the years was, I suppose, the drift to uh, using contract labour. So once upon a time, you're an employee, 
but what did we see happen over time? We saw the use of contractors springing up and we saw labour hire become a very important part of the business landscape. And if so, we look at today's environment, Michael, it's, contract labour is incredibly widespread. It's not just a case we've got a few contractors out there, it's becoming the norm. So this whole idea about whether a contractor is or is not subject to payroll tax is a huge bugbear. Major issue for employers, absolutely. May talk about that a little bit more later on, but certainly uh, employee versus contract is a, is a huge problem for business to grapple with, not only in respect of payroll tax, but in, in fundamental pay-as-you-go withholding, superannuation, work cover. Uh, so it's, a, it's, definitely, it's definitely a big issue. But w when we got to harmonisation or a plan to harmonisation or to harmonise the payroll tax base, that was a great initiative and largely things did get streamlined. We still had that problem that employers have to lodge payroll tax returns in different states. Uh, that's annoying. Uh, but we had a, a, a more consistent base which was excellent. Um, but as I say, the, the, the state governments, because they're in control of it, don't mind pulling a few levers to achieve some economic or political outcomes. Um, what we've seen recently, which is probably a positive thing for business, is, for instance, you know, the Victorian government trying to improve the business landscape for regional employers, um, introduces some rules about, for instance, lower tax rates for regional-based employers. That's a good thing. Um, we see... In New South Wales, things like a, a program called the Job Actions Plan. So effectively a rebate of payroll tax as you're growing your headcount of employees. Again, a good thing. A political lever, yes, but it's another thing for employers to have to deal with. Um, fortunately, those kind of things are good news. Um, the other thing I think we're seeing that probably is, is, a, is a big benefit for business um, is that states seem to be lifting their thresholds fairly quickly now, fairly liberally. So we get, a, a, we get the, uh, the ACT with a $2 million payroll tax threshold. Wonderful. Not many small businesses are going to trip over that level. We see South Australia moving up to $1.5 million threshold uh, in the next year or so. We see New South Wales going up over the million dollars to a threshold. So they're good initiatives for business because it takes the very small businesses out of the payroll tax net gives them time to grow, get them ready to be able to handle with compliance, tax compliance. So let's go back to harmonisation. Uh, we've still got inconsistencies with rates and thresholds, but I don't see that as a major issue. I think most people can, can deal with that. But thankfully, we've now got harmonisation of things like definitions and grouping rules. And that was probably the, the more challenging part of working your way through these provisions. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. The big ticket items were, were nicely harmonised. Uh, there have been a few court cases where different states have run different issues, which show perhaps there may be some interpretational differences from the states about the same set of legislation. Um, so one would hope that the state revenue officers will be sitting around a table uh, making sure that those kind of, uh, they have a consistent approach to the same definitions. So perhaps could we delve into a bit more detail? What are some of the, the technical challenges and what are some of the queries that you get across your desk when it comes to payroll tax? Well, I, I think they, they largely don't change um, from, from year to year. Um, the key one normally is that an employer has figured out that it needs to be registered and where it needs to be registered. So that, that's the challenge for small business. You're growing your wages. You might be setting up into state. You've got to understand that it's a state-based system and that the minute you trip the threshold you need to get yourself into the system uh, proactively rather than wait for a knock on the door from a revenue office because they've data matched your wage payments with the federal government and seeing that you're over the threshold but not registered. 
the, the payroll tax. So that's the, the easy one, the simple one. The other two big issues, um, and again, they don't change from, from year to year. Um, one is around contractors. So is, an, is a person an employee or a contractor? Payroll tax rules uh, are cast very broadly. So effectively, all service providers or contractors, legitimate contractors, can potentially be subject to payroll tax. Uh, and what the way the system largely works is that everyone's in, everyone's caught, unless the contractor fits one of the statutory exclusions. Can you go through those? Well, I, I, I won't bore the listeners, um, but basically the way the rules are cast is everything's in until you satisfy an exclusion. What the exclusions are meant to do are take out contractors that legitimately work for other businesses. So the, the contractors that end up getting caught, and this is a bit of a smell test, is the contractor that really only has one person that it provides services to and largely provides services throughout a year. And they're the ones that effectively don't satisfy the exclusions. So that's, you know, that's the smell test. All right. Can you comment on the individual contractor versus the one contracting through an entity? Because I still think there's a bit of confusion out there that if I was contracting to you, for example, through a trust or through a company, um, surely I'm not caught by payroll tax or you're not caught. But I think there are some misunderstandings yeah, about that. Definitely a bit of a myth. Uh, with the exception of Western Australia, every other jurisdiction basically would uh, potentially tax a payment to a company contractor. Uh, on the same terms as a, a payment to an individual, a sole trader, where that company contractor was really only rendering services to the one principal. And that's where it differs to superannuation laws because when we look at the superannuation guarantee rules, if there is an entity involved with that contractor, then there is no SG obligation. Precisely. So it does differ. Precisely, yes. Mm. Correct. Agree. Um, so the other area I think that causes lots of problems in the payroll tax sphere are the grouping rules, uh, cast they are again cast rather broadly um, to the extent that someone that is a potential beneficiary of a discretionary trust that operates a business is taken to control that business for payroll tax purposes. And therefore, if that potential beneficiary has another business which they control, the two businesses are grouped. So rules are cast very broadly, but then the commissioner gets a discretion to ex exclude businesses that are potentially grouped. Um, and that has been the subject of endless litigation in recent years where the revenue officers seem to pretty much win most of the cases hands down. So is this similar to the contractor rule? Basically, grouping rules say you're in if there's any remote connection and you've got to claw your way back out. Probably probably not as broadly cast. You, you need to fall foul of the grouping rules. So there are objective tests of control. Uh, so you work your way through those. But then there are some more hazy tests of control or, or, or basis of control or other measures that can get you grouped. And the big one that causes a lot of problems is a test called the interuse of employees. Uh, colloquially, that, that's what it gets referred to as. Um, so, for instance, two businesses share an office. One of the businesses pays for the receptionist. The receptionist services both businesses by way of taking phone calls, doing a bit of admin work. That potentially is a basis of grouping for both businesses, notwithstanding there may be no ownership or directorship control. Do you think that's missed? That's not missed by revenue. No, by revenue, <laughs> but by the employers. Do you think that's something yes, that they're not yes, aware certainly. of? Yes, mm. certainly. People would say, well, that's ridiculous and, and that's you know that, that, that shouldn't be a basis of grouping. But what people fail to realise is it is a basis of grouping and then there's a, a positive onus on the employer to actually seek the discretion as opposed to assume that the discretion will be conferred. And as I say, an endless stream of cases 
where unfortunately uh, the taxpayers seem to lose most of them. With the litigation, I wanted to turn our discussion to that because uh, certainly through our training materials, we see a lot of payroll tax cases come through the materials. And if I could describe the two categories that they tend to fall into, one is definitely grouping, as you say, and the other is whether they've got charitable status. So there seem to be um, a congregation of issues that revolve around those two issues. Um, obviously, occasionally you'll have another um, element come before the courts, but most of the time the court is trying to decide should they be grouped and can they be excluded on the basis of some charitable exemption. So can you comment on both you, of those? You've, you've pretty much nailed it. Um, well, I, I get surprised by the cases as they come through, um, largely because I wonder why they were ever run because they don't. most of them don't seem to be a winning chance. Well, certainly when you read the judgment, you wonder why the case was run because it never seemed to be a winning chance. But I think that you're right. There seem to be those two areas of cases, so the, the, the charitable cases. What's happening there is a lot of organisations that are charitable in nature or potentially charitable in nature are arguing that they get the benefit of the payroll tax exemption. Um, where they're all falling over or largely falling over is that the courts are saying, well, hang on a second, Whilst some of your purposes may be charitable, you're really set up to benefit the members of your organisation. So we've had a lot of cases regarding chambers of commerce, uh, law, and law societies. Industry groups. Industry groups. So those types of bodies. And the question really is, are you there to benefit your members or are you there to benefit the broader community in a way that would be considered charitable. And they will often argue they have a dual purpose, but it's really trying to understand what is their core purpose. Exactly. And I should say, in these group of cases, not all taxpayers are losing. There have been a number of winners, and it's certainly an area, a very interesting area of law, because it also dovetails into the Charities Commission and their role. Um, and one thing I find quite fascinating is cases where people are arguing that they're charitable for payroll tax purposes if you look them up on the charities register, they're not registered as a charity. So it seems to me to be a little bit of a, a sole purpose test here and the sole purpose is trying to get payroll tax exemption. Um, maybe it's trying to paint themselves in a particular light for a particular purpose and then that purpose exactly, is changing. very narrowly focused argument. And obviously if you've been paying payroll tax and you can get ruled as an exemption, an exempt, um, there's a healthy refund in it for you and that might explain the interest of some accounting firms in, in encouraging taxpayers to pursue this all the way to court. Uh, if I could just go back to the grouping cases, you're right. Most of the grouping cases are about technically we were grouped. There was some degree of common control into use of employees, but we feel that we should be excluded from the grouping because the nature of the businesses, the conduct of the businesses is, is basically sufficiently independent of each other. Um, this is very much driven by evidence and the facts and the connections between businesses. Um, I would say that over the years, I think that the, the ability to get excluded has tightened up um, and now you struggle to get the exclusion. And I think some of the cases that have been run and lost haven't helped the rest of the taxpayers because the, the, the land seems to have... Um, uh, the landscape here seems to have tightened up a bit in terms of when the commissioner will give the exclusion. So a two-part question, Michael. Does that mean that with so many of these taxpayers losing before the courts, they are being poorly advised? And secondly, given the predominantly um, of the main audience that we are um, talking to is going to be the practitioners, the accountants, 
is this something that they are skilled up enough on? Should they be getting external specialist advice? Or do you think there's just perhaps a lack of education about how these provisions work? Yeah, I think it's probably a complex issue. I wouldn't say that anyone's being poorly advised. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you think about tax compliance, payroll tax compliance largely sits back at a business level. So the advisors aren't necessarily getting too involved. Um, and therefore, a question, for instance, around grouping. So if, if a couple of owners of business A happen to set up another business with some other people and they use a different advisor, for instance, to handle that, um, there's not necessarily a lot of visibility on some of the questions that should be being asked in terms of are these two businesses grouped? Can we get the discretion? How do we go about doing that? So I think there's a little bit of just the way the payroll tax system operates, lodge your monthly return, lodge your annual return, that's largely the end of story. Just a bit, little bit of a lack of visibility on some things. So then what happens, revenue will come in, knock on the door, have a look and say, well, we think there's a problem, plus we want five years' worth of adjustments. Then people are forced onto their back foot. They have to try and defend themselves because five years' worth of retrospective adjustments plus penalties interest is a lumpy sum. And then human nature kicks in. Sometimes there's a bit of ego involved and that dislike of payroll tax probably fuels a few cases where perhaps there shouldn't have been a case run. But, you know, that's, that's human nature, I suppose. So if you and I were the two advisors to two businesses, the only commonality between us is the fact that we're advising the same client, but the client hasn't particularly told me that they have another business that you're looking after and they haven't told you that they have another business that I'm looking after. So is it incumbent upon us as advisors to start asking the right questions? Yeah, I think you need to be close to your client and, and kind of in your, your year-end wrap just try and find out what they've done and best, best, I suppose, protect them from some of the risks of other things they may be getting involved with, but not an easy task necessarily. Yeah. The other one that you, you didn't touch on, but that's, it's very important, uh, a common problem is, is cases around the, the contractor issue. And, and not to get too technical in this session, but there are two sets of rules kind of in play where contractors are used. Um, there are the contractor rules, which we've touched on, but there are rules called employment agency rules. Um, and the big difference between the two sets of rules is that under the contractor rules, there are exemptions. So if a contractor has other clients, that's probably a basis of exempting them. So would those tax. exemptions be broader than for a standard contractor? No, they are the rules for standard contractors. Uh in employment agency situations, so where you need someone in your business and you go to an intermediary who has a register of people and they provide you with someone, in, in that type of situation, there are basically no exemptions. Okay. Um, uh, now, th th that's simplifying things because th th there are different exemptions. But th the key thing is if you get caught under the employment agency rules, you, you can have a much higher kind of a payroll tax impost because you can't exempt the worker, so to speak, based on some exemptions. In the same way that if you're just employing the, the contractors directly. Yeah, yeah, so you're, mm. you're, you're worse off. So so what we've seen in the last few years has been a swag of cases about how these employment agency rules work, which is a bit of a mystery to me as to why some of the cases have run again. Um, but fortunately, we've had a, a good case in New South Wales, uh, the Uni University of New South Wales Global case, which is a very important case because it's put a bit of a stake um, in the sand to say that, well, hang on a second, um, maybe people were applying these employment agency rules to too many situations and they've read them down a little bit to say the employment agency rules are only really meant to apply where it's effectively someone who is employee-like 
Um, so who's going into a business to do employee-like functions where the employment agency rules should kick in. Um, and the benefit of that is if you've got you know, a legitimate contractor coming through an intermediary, such as an employment agency, um, that won't be an employment agency contract. It will be caught under the normal contractor rules and the exemptions are again available. So sorry to get a bit technical, but that, that's an emerging issue for sure. No, I'm seeing that coming through our notes yeah. as well. If you're running a business, what's your best advice as to how they can deal with their exposures with payroll tax? Where are well, the risks? I, I think let's not start with the risks. Let's learn to love payroll tax. <laughs> now, you can't see Robin's face here, but she's grinning. <laughs> so I'm just trying to get my head around how anyone can love and be okay. fond of let's, payroll tax. Let's learn to live with it. So <laughs> we started out by saying we don't think it's going anywhere. Yes. Um, so let's let's accept it as part of our business landscape. Let's put in place some robust practices to make sure that our compliance is adequate. And, and, and they are very simple things like making sure that your work papers are clear, that you're drawing in all of the information from all of the sources to show a revenue officer in due course that you are complying with your payroll tax obligations. So where payroll tax it starts to get complex is in lodging a return, you're bringing in your wages, so you need your payroll records. You might have some contractors at a court, so you have to go to accounts payable and extract some data. Your fringe benefits taxes uh, need to come in. You've got to make sure you've picked up all your superannuation. Um, then you've got to think about uh, grouping issues. Well, does the, do the, you know, the directors of this company own anything else that we need to know about. So, so you've got to just be able to show that in your year-end processes, you've got a comprehensive way of showing you've brought in all of the, the data that you need. And to add to that, if you've got employees departing during the year, so there could be um, employment termination, termination payments, payments and your yeah. leave payments. Correct, correct. Hopefully all of that's kind of reflected in payroll reports. Um, where, where the big issue is, though, I think, for, for, for a lot of smaller employers is to, to show that they've made a proper fist of working out where the contractors need to be included. Uh, and by that I mean, so we, we said before that potentially every service provider could be caught up under the contractor rules unless they're excluded. So we've got to show that we've made some effort to go through the list of service providers we use and work out why they would be exempt. Now, some are obvious. You know, we, we pay Telstra for our phone bill. Well, they're obviously going to be exempt. Um, but we've got to identify, I think, what is the group that might be a problem that might largely only work for us. And if we're going to not include them, we've got to have some reasons why. And there have been a couple of cases where taxpayers have lost because they just don't have that evidence of what else did that contractor do. A statement, maybe a year-end circularisation to contractors, how many other clients did you work for? What percentage of your business came from us? Something to base a decision on. Because if you don't get it, you know, in the year you're putting your return together for and three years later you're asked to go back and find it, well, good luck. You might have had a dispute with the contractor. They may not be willing to help. They might be out of business, et cetera, et cetera. That also requires a dialogue with the contractor because that conversation needs to be had to ascertain what else they are doing. Absolutely. And who they're doing yeah. it for. So we, we prefer like a year-end circularisation of uh, uh, not every service provider you use, but a narrow group that could be the problem group and certainly the group revenue would, would want to have a look at. And each business will know what that group what that group looks like in the context of what they use contract services for. I wanted to have a chat to you about single-touch payroll. Now, I've been heavily involved with the tax office on the consultation, and a lot of our discussions have been revolving around how the data is going to be used once the ATO receives it through these regular payroll reports. 
You know, at the moment, the purpose of, of single-touch payroll is to enable transparency and allow the ATO to better identify non-compliance. But certainly in due course, it is expected that other agencies and government departments are going to be using it. For example, Human Services, Department of Immigration, etc. I'm wondering to what extent, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, that we're going to see data coming out of the ATO and flowing down to the state payroll offices in order to basically match data. You touched on uh, data matching earlier. But can you comment on how you see single-touch payroll being a, a very powerful tool for the, the payroll tax uh, and state revenue offices? Well, I think I'd just reiterate what you've just said. I mean, you know, if I was a, a revenue officer, I would be delighted to know that I'm going to have such a rich source of information available to me. Um, and, and add to that a number of other uh, reporting systems that have been introduced uh, recently where, where businesses have to, to, to let the ATO know about various contractor payments and the like. So I would say that as a revenue officer, I would be delighted with the prospect of my access to the single touch payroll records for all sorts of data matching initiatives. Um, revenue officers are, are quite good at it already. Um, they, they use work, workers' compensation data quite well to do data matching. They use ASIC data quite well to do data matching, FBT data. So, yeah, I think this really puts them in a strong position in terms of their, their compliance activities. They are pretty active. I think Victoria Revenue, for instance, did something like 11,000 investigations in the 16-17 year for 420 million odd in collections. So... They're pretty targeted. They, they know where to look and this will only help help them. So, again, it goes back to my point before about, okay, perhaps we can't love payroll tax, but we can live with it um, and, and we need to live with it properly, put in place good practices, get our compliance right quickly, efficiently. It's a cost of business. Um, it's an important revenue source. It's important to the government and the money hopefully gets put to a good purpose because we're going to be paying tax one way or another. Or another. <laughs> Do you have any final comments or observations or suggestions for the people listening? No, I think just to, to, to um, embrace the tax, it is there. Um, it's not that difficult to comply with. And I think that um, a little bit of short-term pain to get on top of your compliance practices, um, to, to, to make sure you think payroll tax on an annual basis as part of your business governance strategy and tax, tax governance strategy, uh, that, that's the way to do it, and therefore you won't have any nasty surprises down the road. Final observation for me, I'm thinking about uh, the fact that this is typically on a monthly cycle. So you may have advisors coming on an annual basis, maybe on a, a quarterly basis for BASSs, but you're really going to have a much more frequent dialogue, and it's important to keep on top of these obligations so that, as you say, we don't end up a year down the track without having complied, and then we end up with back penalties. Yeah, absolutely. Good, great opportunity for advisors to be talking to their clients about what they're doing in their business, the directions they're taking their business, um, and, 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 and adding a bit of value about, well, look, if you're thinking of doing that, just be mindful that this could arise from a payroll tax perspective or a workers' comp perspective, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, a, a really good excuse for advisors to get closer to their to their clients, I think. Yeah, it's always a good thing. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining me today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter 
hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Thank you. Till next time.